Good morning. How are we doing today? Um, what another, what a beautiful week, right? Like we've had some incredible temperatures. Um, I chose to leave and I go, went to the UP. So the, so the temperatures weren't quite as nice, but you know, we, I got most of it, most of it. So, but really appreciate you spending your time with us on what is a beautiful day. Um, before, I, before we jump in this morning to what I have for us, I want to talk about something completely unrelated, and that is the Upper Peninsula. I did go visit my folks um, this past week for Mother's Day and my dad's 70th birthday, um, and it was great. Uh, Bo played his first nine holes on the same course um, that I learned how to play on 20 years ago, so that was a really, really special moment. I've got a pretty cute video to show anybody who will willing to watch it afterwards. Um, but it is, uh, it's a different kind of world up there. Uh, I woke up early on Wednesday morning. My parents live right on Lake Huron, and the, the dawn is just really, really beautiful. So I got up early to work on this talk, and I, went out, I was going to go outside to take in, take in the morning. And um, as right as I'm about to walk through the door, I run into this. Yeah, it was, it was, up, it was the right way when I saw it. Um, it was, it was this way, uh, my, this is Mike Bradaway's first time in the booth, so, um, he'll be in Kidport next week, so, <laughs> if you want to avoid that, we could use it, you could sign up, um, but I about lost my pants, I mean, you're, you're seeing it after I was grabbing my phone and, and fumbling, so, but it was, it was right there, right in front of me, so, um, it was not a large bear, but I'm not sure that size is a factor when we consider interactions with these creatures, right? Like when you hear about a bear attack, nobody's first question is, well, how big was it, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's a bear, right? You just, you want to keep as much like walls and barricades and firearms between you and it at all times. Um, but it is a different kind of world in Drummond Island. It is the definition of of solitude and peace and calm interrupted by bears. So, but it is that time of year, right? It's like this is the time when bears are waking up from their hibernation, uh, which is not a threat to us on this side of the bridge. So, I do love this time of year. It's that strange middle space between spring and summer. It's like it's like we're waking up from a really long hibernation, especially this spring, it feels like that more than any other. It's like finally, like we can wake up, the temperatures are getting warmer, the days are getting longer. Some of my friends have already jumped in Lake Michigan, which I'm told is a choice that some sane and civilized people choose to make in May. Um, and that is a strange thing to me, remains and will be for a long time. Um, it is also graduation season, uh, seniors. What do, we, what do we have, like a week? 10 days left of classes, like three weeks left until uh, the actual graduation ceremony. Um, and man, it just goes by fast. Every single year, it just seems to go by quicker and quicker. Uh, one of my favorite things about being a young life leader um, was watching kids, watching kids become, right? Like become more than kids. There's like, there's that literal graduation and then there's that metaphysical graduation of watching them become the person that they were created to be. And each graduate is, um, is different, they're unique, they take different paths, they go in different directions, and that is, that's the fun of it. Um, and I do wanna mention this, like we would love to celebrate 
all of our graduates. Um, I believe that Sunday is June 5th. And so if you've got a graduating senior in your world, if that's your child, we would love, we would love for them to participate in the little celebration that we have. Um, so if you can connect with me or Jen Meyer, or just drop a connect card in the giving box. That's, that would be enough and that would be great. So anyway, I've always tried to tell my graduating friends, uh, I, say, I say, say yes to everything that's legal your first year of college. Now parents, wait a second, it's a joke, right? It's, I know there are exceptions to that rule. Not everything legal is good, but the heart behind what I'm trying to tell them right, is you never know what group of people you're going to find yourself with, right? What, what was in high school, your community, your life, your hobbies, what you do there, it starts to look very different uh, for many people in college. And so I think it's just such a beautiful time to try uh, new things. And um, I'm just, I'm always just really jealous. I loved, I loved that time of my life. Uh, but the beauty is that what's next, there's no hierarchy of high school, right? It disappears. And for the most part, the stigma of whatever hobby or pastime that you have, it goes away. Uh, for instance, I played Dungeons and Dragons in college, and no one cared, right? It was just something I did. In high school, that mattered. In college, it didn't. I was free to be who and with whoever I wanted to be, and that kind of freedom is really, really special and it's a beautiful thing that happens in very few moments of life. When I was working with Young Life, Allie and I, we went to our fair share of graduation parties um, and we ate our fair share of trans fats at those graduation parties. Uh, and something that I've noticed over the years, although every party is a little bit different, every party is unique and every graduate has their own path, the list of questions that a graduate gets on that day is, pr is pretty universal, right? It's pretty much the same when you arrive at the party. There's, a, there's some kind of receiving line. Everyone's anxious to greet the graduate, and they, they ask that question, right? That infamous question. So what's next, right? As if it's casual, like as if you have control over what's next. Um, or maybe it's a question along those same lines, like where are you going to school? What are you going to study? Have you considered the cost-benefit analysis of a standard in Roth IRA, right? Like it's something along those lines that we as adults just want to make sure they get it right. Uh, it's a loaded question, right? It's this huge question. It's an overwhelming question. But after about 30 minutes in that receiving line, we, you get the speech down, right? You start answering the question before it's even, even asked. Um, so I probably need to apologize, maybe even people in this room. I am that question asker because I want to know right? I want to know about your dreams. I want to know what it is that you love and what you hope for and what you plan because it's just really, really fun to watch people in that transitional stage of life from one stage to another. Over the last six weeks, uh, Mike Gathright, with the help of Jill McNabney, has been unpacking this concept of stage theory and considering how it relates uh, to the life of faith. Um, and the high school graduation, I feel like, is one of the last universal, universally observable transitions between those stages, right? Like, not completely. Paths go in many different directions following high school. People grow in different ways and different speeds. But, um, but bear with me for a second. Take a, take a minute. No, not a minute. That's too long. Take a couple seconds. Remember the person that you were in high school, right? Think about that person. What kind of music did they like? What were their friends like? Who did they hang out with? 
What did you value? What did they value? What did they hope for? And now how have you changed since? Do you think the same way? Do you dream for the same things? My guess is if you're anything like me, it's kind of a, a little bit of a mixed bag. The things that bring me joy remain mostly the same, but my perspective on the world, like what I hope for, what I long for, what I think success is, what I value, these things have been transformed as they should have been, right? That's how life works and how it moves. I'm not sure where high school graduation falls on this spectrum. For me personally, it feels like my high school years were, were the last moments that I remember challenging that simple way of thinking, right? There is a right way and a wrong way, and I always wanted to prove that there was a third way. Um, my parents and mentors and teachers and coaches, they all taught me how to live, they all taught me how to think, um, and sometimes they even taught me what to think, which was helpful, and also, you know, I didn't care for that. But uh, I remember leaving home. I remember leaving for college in the summer of 2007, and I remember, I remember thinking, like, as I'm driving away, my, you know, my mom had just filled up my big green van with gas, and I was driving away, uh, and I was like, I wonder if they're wrong. You know, like, what if everything that I would have been taught at this point what if, what if it's something different? Um, and I learned the hard way quite a few times <laughs> that they weren't wrong. Um, but I'm lucky. I had parents that fostered that kind of spirit in me, right? They were not scared of my challenge, and I think that made me more rebel-curious than it did full-on anarchist, right? But I'm sure um, it did give them pause when I, when I left the safety net a little bit. Like, what is this kid going to go do? What is he going to become? And so the season of life is when, when I believe I began to flirt with the complex, wondering if there was any space between the right and the wrong, any gray within the black and the white. And so like I mentioned earlier, we've talked about this for six weeks, and so I've gone a little bit back and forth about what, how I wanna, how, what angle I want to take at this, right? How much review do we need to do? Um, and so instead I decided considering it from uh, a couple completely different perspectives. Instead of doing a, just a straight up review, I'm gonna come at it from a fresh angle. Um, and so uh, I would encourage you to go back and, li and listen to some talks for the last six weeks. Um, you'll, get a, you'll get an understanding and an idea here, but it's been a really, really fun series. So quickly the four stages are as follows. We have simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony, and the idea is that, is that throughout our life, not at a predestined speed of transition, but that, we, that life is moving through these stages of faith in a number of different paradigms. So we're gonna look at a couple of those. So as best as science can figure it out, at the genesis of all things living and not, matter consists of particles. Um, at the foundation of everything, that is all there is, just these little floating particles. Well, they get together, and they combine to make what we know as atoms, right? Everything is made out of atoms, and atoms are made out of particles. There are more atoms in our body than there are pieces of sand on the beaches and all of the world combined. Think about that for a second. Think about how much sand is on the planet. Now multiply that by however many people are in this room. That's how many atoms are just occupying our physical bodies. In our simplest form, we're made up of this collection of atoms. This is the simple foundation of 
all the matter that occupies all of the universe, from the cushion that you're sitting on to the light that's coming from that light bulb up there, it's all matter, and it's all made up of atoms. And so here's, what, here's what's wild about atoms. I think this is really interesting. When you single them out, you can see really little difference between the one that makes up that cushion and the one that's on your head, right? The one that makes up the hair on your head. I, it's, it is, it's crazy. So atoms, they get together with other atoms, and they make little communities of atoms known as molecules, right? Didn't think you were getting a chemistry lesson this morning. Um, is that, or biology, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Those are called molecules. So think oxygen, think hydrogen. So atoms come together to form an oxygen molecule. A bunch of other atoms come together to create two hydrogen molecules. And then those two get together and they make Niagara Falls. That's just how it works. That's just how it becomes very few steps in between. Um, so particles combined with particles make atoms. Atoms combined with atoms make molecules. Molecules combined with molecules, anybody know? Cells right? Cells. A cell is a combination of molecules collecting within a specific system to form an even more complex thing, right? So we can see right here in our basic theory of biology, we can see this four-part stage theory playing out. Um, I don't think it gets any more simple than particles. And as they gather together, collecting, coalescing, they grow in complexity, building on one another with more and more energy, eventually growing into a functional cell. Like, that is the simplest form of life. What's unique about, about this process is these cells have a mission. It's that they have a purpose in mind. And that mission is fairly simple, right? It's much more advanced and sophisticated than the atom. But in order for it to keep growing and moving and becoming, it has to find something more, right? So cells combine with other cells to make something even bigger, a more complicated and more advanced system. Okay, maybe you can see where we're going. This is where we move into complexity. As those cells begin to multiply and to take on form and to occupy space, uh, thinking about this within the context of our own bodies, uh, how, does, how, does a group, how does this group of cells know it's coming together to make a brain, right? And then this group of cells, as they're getting together, and it makes a liver. And then this group of cells gets together and it makes a femur, right? How does it, how do they know that? I'm sure there's some very simple biological explanation for all of this, but how is it that a singular cell has the agency and understanding of its purpose? Baffling to me. So let's take it one step further, right? If you were to cut off my left arm right here on stage, and nobody was bothered by that at all, but just cut it off right here, uh, and I was to hand it to you, could you find me in it? Could you point out where Paul is, right? Maybe you'd recognize my wedding, my wedding ring, maybe you'd see the burn on my forearm from when my cousin got too close with the pierogi pan, but could you find the source of my dreams, right? Could you, could you find the moment where I first heard punk rock music or figure out the song that was playing in the background of my first kiss? Or even, take it a step further, if I handed you my brain, not just my arm, but my brain, could you find the joy that I had watching my son play his first nine holes with his papa, right? Could you open it up and pull out the freedom that I felt when I graduated from high school or the love that I had for my wife on our wedding day? You couldn't, 
right? And no one could. Not even me. If I, you handed me my brain, I couldn't find it. Because none of those things are true, and none of them remain true, unless the whole system is working together, is working in collaboration. So perhaps this is where we move into that stage three, this perplexity where it comes into play. Particles and atoms are the simplest building blocks with cells and organs growing in complexity. Perhaps it's this seemingly unexplainable idea of how this collection of cells and, and electricity can remember, right? How it can feel not only pain and sorrow, but joy and pleasure and elation. You see, who we are is so much more than particles and atoms and molecules and cells. Who we are is so much bigger than even human, and that is because we were made to be so much more than human. For me to be me, for me to be, for me, to be me in all the ways, all of me has to be working together. Not one, if one part of me fails, physical, emotional, spiritual, it threatens the functioning of the entire system. It's unbelievably per perplexing to understand this on our own, right? Not, not only does a collection of cells, but an inspired collection of complex systems, right? The skin, the brain, the liver, the femur are all working together alongside a thousand other systems ranging in their complexity, but collaborating to make something beautiful. Um, atoms to cells, cells into organs, organs shaping our body. Each stage of the progression involves a combination of two or more equal things to make a bigger and better, more sophisticated, more beautiful thing, right? Um, you see, each of us are already living out the stages every single day within ourselves. Our bodies are consistently shedding old cells and taking on new ones. It's an incredible concept. Atoms are not particles, right? They're bigger and more complex. However, they wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for the harmony of those particles coming together to create something even bigger than itself. And this happens over and over and over. There's this flow and movement to life. It's natural in one sense, but there's also something pushing it into motion, drawing it back to the foundational principle of forward progress. It's as if the whole thing was designed and created with harmony and collective movement in mind. There's this arc to it, this evolution from simple into harmony. Um, it's visible in scripture, too. In fact, we can see it play out through the history of the Israelite people um, that's found from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And that's what, I, that's what I'd like to explore this morning. I, you see, up to this point, it's all been intro. So, um, <laughs> right. It's been a weird week, y'all. Uh, so, is, is there a connection, right, between this ancient nomadic tribe of people and the cells that become our bodies. So let's start, let's start somewhere near the beginning. This tribe of people is known as the Hebrews. They were, ens they were enslaved, or they had been enslaved, and they built this great and marvelous kingdom for the pharaohs in Egypt. This Egyptian kingdom was built on the back of the Hebrew slaves. And so to be even more specific, it was actually 12 tribes coming together, right? It's the 12 tribes of Jacob that make up the one tribe of Israel, this Hebrew nation. 
Um, and so Jacob and these tribes, they had been captured and forced to persevere, but they persevered with the hope and the promise of their God, Yahweh, a promise that said despite opposition and oppression, that for God's people, that these descendants of Abraham, their future was promised. Maybe some of that story is a little bit familiar for you. So God chooses a deliverer. He chooses a deliverer from this tribe, and his name was Moses, and he leads them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, which in this context, wilderness purely just means uncharted territory, right? The wilderness was an unmarked land. Whenever we read in the Bible, they went into the wilderness, it probably means because they didn't know where they were going, right? That's what it means to go into the wilderness. Um, And so this large group of freed slaves were now wandering to a place to be determined. And the only thing that united them was the promise of their God and their freedom from Egypt. And so their deliverer, Moses, he gathers them He gathers this great group of people at the base of Mount Sinai. He brings them all together and says, these are the Ten Commandments of our God. This is how the God who delivered us from bondage wants us to organize our life together. And he brings forward these tablets, these marked with ten laws, right? These commandments for how to live life together. And for us, maybe these feel fairly simple. For instance, the first one, have no other gods, right? That's fairly easy. There's one God and one God only, and you are not it, right? That's rule number one. Skip ahead, rule number four, easy. Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Set aside just one day a week to remember rule number one. You are not God. There is a God, and you are not it. That's why we set aside a Sabbath day. And the list goes on, right? And I'm paraphrasing here, but it's essentially don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't kill. In 2022, I think it'd be hard to find someone who enjoys living in civility who doesn't fundamentally want to stack hand on those basic set of rules for collective living, right? And so with those 10 laws, with those 10 commandments in mind, this tribe sets out on what would become a 40-year journey into the wilderness, into the to-be-determined. And so during those two generations, the 12 tribes of Israel, they would be reunited and they would grow into kind of different roles within the tribe. For instance, the tribe of Benjamin, they were known for their strength, and so they were the great defenders um, of the tribe. And then there was the tribe of Asher, and they were known for their agriculture and their livestock, and so they ate the best. Um, and then there was the tribe of Levi, and this, and this was the tribe of priests. And their role within the greater Hebrew body became recording the tribe's history. They wrote everything down. Um, you know, it's like, that, it's like that aunt at Christmas. She's got every story about the great-great-grandma. That's who the, that's who the Levites were, right? They wanted, they wanted to record every single story, every single interpretation of the law. And this is where we get a major chunk of the Bible as we know it. These priests were diligent. Um, they took record of everything, and they, and they recorded it in the Bible and what we see. And so... These Ten Commandments began to be challenged by life and nuance and intention. And, what we, and we, we see this playing out today, right, to a certain extent, that any law or rule, no matter how simple or complex it is, there are exceptions, right? We have to, there are interpretations to how that law plays out. And so over the next 2,000 years, these laws would be recorded and re-recorded and reinterpreted, and we're left with what is known as the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. 
And so those books are filled with the history that I just quickly and rudimentarily summarized. Um, but chapter after chapter is filled with what we call case law. And if you've ever read the Torah, maybe this is where you've gotten a little lost in the minutia, because it, it's like reading legal briefs, like over and over and over, it's these different expanded interpretations of the Ten Commandments. Um, so for instance, here's an example. What we see, what happens, the question we have to ask is what happens when someone is caught stealing because the only way they could feed their family um, was to steal food. Well, this tribe of people decided that they wanted to do everything they can to prevent that from happening. So um, they then mandated within scripture that all farmers would, de would designate a corner of their field, about 10% of their field, and they would leave it unharvested. Okay? They would still plant, they would still till, they would still care for the ground. But when it came time for harvesting, they would leave that 10%, that corner of the field, unharvested so that the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant could come and eat in that corner of that field, no matter their circumstance. So uh, this was a society that had structured itself so that everyone had access to food, right? So these books are filled with these rules like this, some beautiful with clear intention like that one, and some that leave yourself just scratching your head like, the exact number of stones that you'll need to stone someone who works on the Sabbath, or what kind of animals you're allowed to eat and which ones you're not, or what constitutes a murder and what doesn't. So these simple commandments for this adolescent tribe, they started to grow and expand in complexity. And this kingdom began to take shape, and a government was formed, and a nation filled with industry and trade, and it would grow so big that it would eventually become the envy of the entire world, of the, at least the world that they knew about. And so these priests, again, saw it as their duty and their mission to preserve that history and the law of their tribe. And so they formed these agreements with their occupying governments, right? Eventually, this nation would get taken over, another government would come and occupy, but the, the, the priests, they made these agreements with those governments to say, what is it going to take for us to preserve our temple and preserve our faith? And that's when we fast forward 2,000 years where we find this radical new rabbi named Jesus who's threatening that compliance, right? What he's, the message he's bringing into the world is threatening those agreements between what then was the Roman government and these Jewish tribes. Bear with me. We're getting somewhere, I promise. And so one night, one night Jesus is approached by a man named Nicodemus, Right? Nicodemus, um, it, he was a Pharisee, so meaning he was one of the priests who had dedicated his life to this mission of the law and, and history of the faith. And so he comes to Jesus because something that Jesus has said has caught his attention. He comes in the dark of the night because he knows that if he gets caught by his fellow priests that he's going to get in trouble. And so we see a curious Nicodemus. He's not coming to combat Jesus or debate him. Um, but he's beginning to wonder. He's beginning to question. For 2,000 years, his people have fought for and believed in and recorded for what, right? Maybe, just maybe, this Jesus guy has something for him. And this is what Jesus tells him. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. To which Nicodemus responds, how can someone be born again when they're old? Surely they cannot enter 
a second time into their, mother, into their mother's womb and be born? And folks, that is a reasonable and fair question to ask. I don't understand how that works. What is he talking about? How could someone be born again? Now, maybe you're already reading the tea leaves here, right? But this is where we begin to see the story shift into the perplexing, right? Jesus isn't trying to confuse Nicodemus. This wasn't a riddle or a litmus test. Jesus was trying to shift the paradigm of faith. And so why was this significant? 2,000 years, how did one receive favor from God? What did it take to get God on your side? How would someone become part of this tribe that considered, God, that considered themselves God's chosen people? Well, the only legitimate way was to be born into it. Being a direct descendant of Abraham, preserving the bloodline was necessary to preserving the tribe. And one was only chosen by being born into God's tribe. Yet here was this new rabbi, this new teacher, claiming that the only way to see the kingdom of God, to realize the full and abundant life that God wants for his people, was to be born again in spirit. He takes it even a step further. If you, Nicodemus still isn't getting it, and so he's trying to explain this idea. And so a few verses later, Nicodemus still isn't getting it, and so Jesus says this, For God so loved the world. 2,000 years later, later, it's easy to miss this, right? This is a fairly common verse. Many of us maybe can recite it from memory, but it's, but it's easy to miss the point here. See, 2,000 years ago, God loved your tribe, no one else. This was a world of tribal warfare on a massive scale, each region having its own people group, each with their own God who believed and saw the favor of God for them and only them. So to claim that God loved the world, this would have been ex an extraordinary way of thinking. How can one God love the entire world? What tribe is he rooting for then? Right? He can't love the whole world and love only one tribe. Jesus was asking this teacher, this teacher of the Jewish law that had preserved that this tribe was God's chosen tribe for 2,000 years, he was asking him to open his mind. And in doing so, he was, he was going to have to transform his own worldview to include more than just those who look and speak and think like him. In fact, he's asking what it would mean for him to include the entire world. What would it cost? Friends, if God loves the entire world, do you believe him? And what would that mean for us? What would that mean for me if that were true? The story continues, and about 60 years later, the same author of that gospel story, that's the author John, um, that same author, uh, he's had a dream. He's had a vision, and some, some have called it a revelation, and he writes down and records that dream in what is now the last book of the Bible. And so he sees this moment when all of God's people are gathering, right? They're coming together to praise God and to see him and to worship him. And this is how he describes what he sees. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. You see the key word there? 
John is describing the moment, the moment where heaven and earth collide. And what does he see? Every nation. Not some nations, not the most important nations, not just the ones that speak the right languages or have the most money or have the biggest military, but every nation, tribe, and people, and language. This is a huge, harmonious vision of the world as God sees it. This is no longer about just a simple set of commandments. This is about faith in a God who draws a circle around the entire thing and calls it grace. He's asking us to do the same. As we're inspired by his love, as we're inspired by his grace, the response can't be exclusion or separation. It has to be harmony. And this progress, this forward motion, it's woven into the very fabric of our being. But when we resist the flow of life by trying to separate and individualize through certainty and satisfaction and uniqueness, we miss out on the very thing we were designed and created to do. The very thing that is evidence in the very nature of our being, right? You see, there's something at work inside of all of us that's moving us forward. Something that's bringing the smaller, more simple parts of who we are together to create a more significant and complex thing. It's a spiritual gravity that's pulling us together to move the world forward into the next stage of life. And at the heart and foundation of life, it's progress, forward motion. It's the harmony of life that moves us forward. It's not one single atom going off to be the first to become a molecule, right? No, it was an atom combining with other atoms like itself to make a molecule. Forward motion is a good thing. It's the natural and intended course of life, particles into atoms to molecules to cells to humans. And it's not finished yet. The thing that pulls us together, it's natural, and it's good, and as God's spiritual gravity does draw us into each other, it's inevitably going to bring us closer to him, which in the end is what he wants, right? For us to be with him. So I think I feel this, I think I feel this connection to God, this harmony with the nature of grace. Um, I think I feel it most when I'm, when I'm connected to music, Right? Maybe for you, it, it could be running or reading or cooking, indulging with friends. And I, and I, and I like those things, too. I like those things a lot. Um, but I don't, I don't feel it, or at least I don't feel all of it with those. I think it's especially when I'm playing music, when I get to find that groove, you know, alongside the band and Mike and Scooter and Wes, and we just get into the moment. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen every time, but when, when we're lucky, there's sometimes this, this moment in a song where it, it just becomes one, where the song feels like it's playing you, right? And you're just along for the ride. It's a high and a connection like no other. But can you imagine if all of us were up here playing the drums, right? Or if, or if, or if all of us were just playing the same keyboard part in unison, right? It would not have the same effect. It wouldn't sound good at all, no matter how hard Mike tried. No, what makes music music is the harmony of two or more different instruments with different functions and sounds playing in an arranged rhythm at a designated time signature. 
They're complementing one another to create an experience of beauty and connection. This isn't about being the same. It's about embracing and depending on the nuance of every instrument that God has created. So what happens next? What happens when we come together as a collection into a single body? Is it just molecules combined to make cells? What happens when we combine, when we collaborate, when we come together? What is it that we make? Well, the first Christians called it the body of Christ. And as we come together and choose the spirit of harmony and progress that's at the heart of all of it, we get to play a part in loving the world right again. And together, we get to move forward and play a role in the collision of heaven and earth. The one that John was talking about at the end of the book. Another author, the Apostle Paul, he talks about it this way. He says, the way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into exuberance. May you flourish as others flourish and hurt as they hurt. May you know that you are designed to play a part in the progress of this world. May you know that what makes you, you, is exactly what we need. And without you, this world would be missing out. And may what is true for ourselves be true for others as well. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Friends, have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you next week.